0: Well, I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, to open up God's Word with you and appreciate Pastor Stikes and appreciate his handling of the Word. Uh, we are in a different place and we've been a long time. In fact, I've been my wife's pastor. I've been her husband for 37 years, been her pastor for the last 26. So, uh, so we stand in that, that transitional time uh, coming in and, and finding place to be a part of and serve and we're thankful for what God's done uh, Lord called me to ministry. Uh, I worked. Actually, I got saved my junior year of college. Just to give you a little backdrop. So, grew up um, in a family that would—I mean, like we would literally pray or we would say grace at dinner time. So, not a whole lot there. I mean, maybe a little thank you for the day, a little bit of acknowledgement there was a God, uh, but never really went to church. My mom would try and drag me every now and then, but my father never went. So I basically, you know, especially as I hit my teenage years, if it wasn't good enough for my dad, wasn't going to be good enough for me, I didn't need to go. Uh, So grew up unsaved, played, uh, I grew up in Texas, well, my dad was in the military, so kind of a lot of places, but then from seventh grade forward was in Texas, and so you got to play football in Texas, and play baseball in Texas, and... I went to college to play baseball and God, in his uh, humor, put I me in one college. I had a little bit of trouble that first week and decided in my arrogance I would just give them back their scholarship and everything else and leave. Uh, and the next year, I went to a, to, a, to a Baptist college, of all things. Why'd I go? Because I was Baptist. No, I had no interest in being Baptist. They just had a baseball team I thought I could make. So I went to go play baseball and did. Uh, in fact, there was only one class I ever flunked in college. Chapel. The only requirement was to attend. And so I just, uh, I cut one too many, according to their records. I even went and argued about it because I was that arrogant. Uh, So I was convinced I hadn't skipped too many. They were convinced I did. Um, But God, in His grace, then in that extra semester of chapel, um, in fact, I just remember very clearly, but uh, the guy that was preaching actually played for uh, North Texas State. He played with Mean Joe Green, which for a few of you old enough in this room, you know that was a Pittsburgh Steeler. Uh, defensive lineman. Uh, so he played with him. He was an offensive center. I was an offensive center in high school. Uh, so all of those factors, all of it came together in terms of I had been hearing the gospel. Actually, my wife, my wife, then girlfriend, had gotten saved. People in the church were beginning to witness to me. And I could give you the right answers. I grew up kind of Bible Belt area. I've gone to a BBS occasionally. So when people showed me a track, went through, comes down to the end, and where are you? I say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. You know, I mean, I could give you the answer. I could say it. It wasn't true. Uh, so we were then in that setting, and as the gospel was proclaimed, and, and that day God really convicted my heart, opened my eyes. I saw my sin, and I fled to Christ. And on that, in that college auditorium, on my knees, I cried out for God to save me. And then that transformation that God began to wrought. Now, I was was a finance economics major. I was hired by a computer company, uh, moved to Michigan. And so we moved to Michigan, and and I was on my way in the career. But God began doing, you know, we went and found a, we were new Christians, fairly young Christians. I was brand new. My wife had been saved a little bit longer. Found a good church. You know how we found that church? This is helpful for all you came out on the workday. It had really nice landscaping. It was pretty. Now we wanted to go to, we, we, had a, we were discerning, we had a kind of a list of churches we might go to, this was a Baptist church, we went there, but we really did go because my wife was working a temp job, she drove by and said, there's a pretty church we should visit, we did. We never left, grew up spiritually there, and then God called us to ministry, and so called us out to, to actually take our life, back. fact, my wife taught in the Christian school first, and it really, for about six months, maybe a year, it really pacified my conscience because I said, God, I'm in the ministry. My wife, we're one. I got that theology down. Quick, we're one. My wife is teaching the Christian school. I'm in ministry. You can't possibly want me. And I made all the excuses. I said, God, if you want to be in ministry, you know, surely I've been raised in a Christian home. I would have went to a Christian college. I, you, you can't possibly want me. And that, that worked for about a year. And then in special meetings... John just convicted my heart. And I said, you know what? If God really is who he is, he controls everything, he owns everything, then I need to give him my life. I need to say, God, I can trust you. If I can trust you for saving me and for eternity, I think I can trust you with my career. And I had to give that career over the Lord and did. And then God, that began a journey of ministry, which we've been on, and and, if, and God's taken us. And so we were in Michigan at that time, and so we came from Texas to Michigan, and Lord put us in Florida. Then we went to Vermont. It makes kind of an end. My middle name is Mac. It's a really good southern name, Billy Mack. My father was Charlie Mack. His best friend was Billy Jean, and thus I'm Billy Mack. And it's really Billy, okay? So, so that's a good southern name. But anyway, my joke always was: in retirement, we're going to make it an M, which should put me in the Caribbean. (laughs) Didn't see Bob Jones in that, but uh, along the way, no. But uh, in fact, I've been involved in training national pastors for a number of years in China. That door has been closed, obviously. Uh, so really burdened about pastoral training. And so when when this opportunity was presented, I thought at the end of pastoral ministry, I would hope to teach somewhere, maybe internationally, wherever the Lord would have. I just didn't think I was at the end of pastoral ministry yet. Uh, but God did. And so as he made it clear, and we just committed years ago, we trust God in every move, every step. And where the Lord sends us, we'll go. And we'll trust him with the outcome and, and we'll serve him faithfully wherever he plants us. And uh, so it's been quite an adventure, and it's brought us here, and we're enjoying getting to know you and serving. Obviously, I have a special burden for college students. I got saved in college, so it really does give me a special heart and burden for you. And uh, we're looking forward to just growing in our participation in the lives of the students and helping uh, shape Christ in them and share just what God has done and continues to do. So I'm going to have you open your Bibles. Theme, I would say, one of the themes of Colossians is really it's Christ is all in all ends chapter two with that statement Christ is all in all and so Jesus over everything is a grand theme and so I pastor Stikes asked me Friday if I could cover I said sure we were actually had all our kids kind of came in town at a surprise birthday party for my wife and so I'll just tell you this everything is in New King James in case you're not tracking in the translation you're carrying um, so that's because it was already in New King James all right now, I did not realize, honestly, how hard it was having preached for as many years as I have, and somebody asked you to come and do a one-off message, how hard that was going to be to decide which one. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I hope uh, that this will be a blessing. I'm going to do a little tracing into Colossians. I think you're familiar, and uh, we'll, we'll do a little bit of track work there just to help. Um, but we're going to focus our attention in Colossians chapter 3, and let's see, yeah, so... The opening of chapter 3 will really ultimately focus our attention down to verse 12 and dealing with our new life in Christ. But there's a little groundwork as we get there, and so I, I hope it'll be helpful I love the declaration that begins in chapter 3 just a little bit. You know, we're dealing with a wartime situation going on in our culture right now. Potentially, we don't know where all of it's going to go. I mean, we know people, I know people in the Ukraine, uh, all that's going on. But we could only begin, we see the images and it gives us a little flavor of what life is in wartime. One of the things we all struggle with is living out the reality life is always in wartime. We really aren't in peace. There may not be bombs dropping on our soil, but we live in the midst of a spiritual warfare. And Paul, as he writes to the church of Colossae, obviously he's not been there, and he writes in chapter one, he introduces himself, he tells how he knows about the gospel, he's excited, he's praying for them, he shares the truth about Christ being the one who should be preeminent and why that is true, and he comes into chapter two, and now he begins setting off warnings because there's false teachers who've made inroads and they're in the middle of a fight. And so in the middle of this fight for truth, Paul is trying to equip the church to be prepared to battle against truth because the devil always works. As best as he can, he's going to oppose truth. But here you have a fledging church growing and going forward and all of a sudden there's resistance. I have yet to be in ministry and in experiencing the blessing of God and seeing church go forward without then experiencing right on the backside of it resistance. Pressures, struggles, Many of them can come from the outside, but often time, it comes internally. And it happens because those wolves will come in sheep's clothing. And it happens because those false teachers are very persuasive, their personality, that you can have the cult of personality, and they can be just drawing people to themselves, but it'll happen, and it can happen in our culture in many ways. We now have, you know, the great internet, right? So we now have podcasts and everything else under the sun that you can listen to, and you can hear your favorite preacher, which is probably not the pastor you sit under. Don't you think that's a problem? You know, one of the things we're called to do is their faith follow. Aren't you glad God gives you a local church pastor? You can actually see their life. You can see it. So fundamentally important. But Paul's dealing with this context of this happening. And so he's trying to equip the church and he's arming the church. He's trying to expose truth. And then chapter three, he turns to this issue. You're new in Christ. And as those new in Christ, your life ought to be fundamentally different. And he's going to point to the things that have changed. And that's why he states, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above And so that if is not like if I doubted. It really is more of an if and yes, I believe this is true. Paul is saying, I believe it. He's go all the way back to the first chapter. You see, I've heard of your faith, your love. You're growing. You see your faith in Christ. I see your love. I hear about it, I should say. And he hears of that. So now he's saying, if you've been raised and I believe that's true. So you now have been raised. I love the language because he's pointing out because he used this language in the uh, chapter two saying you were dead. Remember who you were. You were dead. And God made you alive and so now he's saying you're raised and so you've been elevated from spiritual death to life. And so this life is a raised life. It is a life raised in Christ and so you've been raised with Christ from spiritual death. Now your life should have a directional shift. And that's really the point that he makes in those contrasts in verses 1 and 2. You set your mind above, all right? So we are to seek those things above, set our mind on the things above, and not on the things of the earth. You were bound. You were once a son of disobedience. You once walked in the ways of the Gentile. You lived out in your disobedience. That's who you were. But now things are different. Now you're in Christ and so he's leveraging off chapter 2 and who they were and he's reminding them who they now are in Christ. And you've been raised in Christ. Now your direction of your life has been fundamentally shifted. You actually have now an eternal value system. The things of the earth stop being so important. And it's not they're not important. It's not they have no value. It's just they don't have eternal value. So keep them in perspective and don't make your life about what it once only could be. It once only could be about this earth. It only could be about that which is temporal. You've been raised to a whole new existence and a new plane of really life experience because now you're in Christ. And being in Christ changes everything. Aren't you glad? And so you died, and that's he's reminding us, you died to who you once were. And your life is now connected to Christ. And when Christ appears, and here's that great promise, right? You're going to appear with him in glory. Folks, glory's ahead. I think of the people in Ukraine, and I can only begin to imagine all that they're going through and they're hiding and all that's happening and the uncertainty, and they don't know uh, physical life whether it's going to sustain. But the one thing every believer there knows is glory is ahead. This life is a vapor, it's a temporal gift. But the gift God's given is forever. Glory's coming. And so if you're in Christ, you now live fundamentally shifted, and then he goes in and, uh, to the whole issues of the things you're to put off and set aside and emphasizing what needs to be cut out of the life because now you're new in Christ. And, and I'm not going to go through all of that, but if you look down at that, that transitional verse, verse 8, but now, but now, because verse 7 is you once walked in all these things when you lived as a son of disobedience, but now... Now you put off uh, because you become a new man in Christ. And he ends with that declaration "Now Christ is all in all. And so living this new life received in Christ, that's kind of the theme. And in verse 12, as he focuses on that theme, he's really setting it up. In order to live this new life, we must meditate on who we are and how we came to be. Uh, This is a repeating theme. You've got to remember who you are, your identity. How do you identify yourself? And we take on a lot of identities. I mentioned to you, uh, this is a transitional time for my wife and I in the sense that if you, I've been, my name for 27, well, actually longer than that, because I was an assistant pastor before, but for 33 years, my name has been pastor. I always joked when, especially when God moved us to a new church, I said, all of you get off cheap. You can just say pastor and I'm going to say yes. I can't say that to you. (laughs) i got to learn your names. Uh, So, you know, you you, you come into a new station of life. My identity has been wrapped up as being a pastor of a church. Uh, My wife's identity wrapped up as being a pastor's wife. Uh, That doesn't just fully define us, but it defines an aspect of our life. And so we all live out of a sense of those identities. And as we deal and interact with this world, you're going to live out of a sense of identity. Who are you? What really is important to you and why? If you've been raised with Christ, because that's kind of that thematic statement that all through chapter 3 is supposed to be ringing in your ear. Every point as you go through, you're going to put this to death. Why? Because you've been raised with Christ. You're going to put this on. Why? Because you've been raised with Christ. And so he sets it with that prefix for you, to, you and I to say if, Paul's saying if and I believe it's to be true, now it's really being put on you. If you're in Christ and you should be going, yes, I'm in Christ. Yes, I'm in Christ. Therefore, I put off these things. Therefore, I put on these things because I'm in Christ, because that really begins to wrap up and remember who I am. And he said, therefore, as the elect of God. And it's kind of a strange place to bring that topic up in one sense. Okay, Paul's stopping as the elect of God, so what do I check on that one? Is there a stamp? What did I get? How do I know? And it really is rooted back in all that he has said in the prior chapter where he's reminded them of who they were. He said, you were once alienated and hostile to God because of your wicked works, but now he, God, Christ, has reconciled you. He said in chapter two, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. That's who you were, but God made you alive. And so when he roots into this issue of saying the elect of God, he's not saying you got some stamp card or you know something, you, you, you're a some special club. What he's reminding them is that you had no, nothing to offer in the equation. That you're now a child of God because of what God has done in your life. You were dead. You were alienated. You were hostile. You were a child of disobedience. Your life lived in rebellion against God. That's what you were. But now, because of God's love for you, because that's really the emphasis in election, because of God's great love for you, we can even see that like in Ephesians, he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, set apart to God, and without blame before him in love, that all this is a part of God's loving, that he, before, I was, before the foundation of the world, chose to love me. Why? out of the overflow of his wisdom and grace. I'm an object, a child of God's love because of his grace. I didn't earn it. I didn't merit it. And as we look at this life and the value systems we choose and the choices we're making, we're constantly going to live out of this sense of identity and we struggle as sinners because as sinners, one of the things we know need a good doctrine of sin is I am inherently selfish. And if you don't believe me, ask my wife. And that just means my first go round on something is going to respond how it makes me feel, how it makes me look. I'm going to respond out of the selfishness of my heart. If the Spirit of God is not actually reigning, I'm not yielding to the Spirit. My flesh is as ugly as anybody's flesh because it's self-oriented by default. And because of God's rescuing love and mercy, I'm no longer a slave to that. Praise the Lord. Doesn't mean I don't struggle with it but i'm no longer enslaved to my own selfishness or my selfish ways because i've been raised if you've been raised with christ and because i've been raised with christ here's this grand truth that we are to know consider that god actually chose to put his love upon you raise you out of death and give you life that's overwhelming i mean that is one of that's why we one of the other themes you could come to is you're always called when you consider your identity in christ to thanksgiving in fact, every true believer is marked as a thankful person. And if we actually aren't marked by thanksgiving, and maybe this is resonating with me, I just had two, you know, a four-year-old and a three-year-old, almost three-year-old, and a one-year-old in my home. You know what? They really struggle with being thankful. You know what? No matter what they get, there's always something else they want. And I know your kids. Well, some of you adults are looking around. I'm like, Isn't there? some of them are smiling. Because they recognize, yeah, their kids did it too. Some of you are in the middle of that. Others of you are like, no, nah, that wasn't me. Yes, it was. <laughs> in fact, if you need a good lesson on depravity, please volunteer to serve in the nursery, especially the two and three-year-olds. Because everything's mine. I had it first. He did that. She did that. Oh, but she did. Oh, I want. I don't want that right now. Well, who asked you? <laughs> Do you get a vote? Well, they think so. In fact, they want to demand it their way. And you deal with all that, and you're, sometimes you're like, this is a cute little grandchild of mine is like, uh, whew, honey, I love you, but right now, you're just not being very lovable. <laughs> and that is who we are without Christ. You know what, it, it, we, we see it in two- and three-year-olds, and sometimes it's cute, sometimes it's not. But one thing I can promise, it gets only uglier as people get older. I can tell you, I mean, you know, you are working on who you will be. And God is working on who you will be. Uh, I I pastored mentioned in Florida for 11 years, okay? I had some lovely seniors who loved the Lord and their life continued to reflect it. They were a joy to be around. They encouraged you. They loved you. They built you up. There were others. Maybe I should just stop there. (laughs) There were others that as they grew in agedness, They just really didn't care what anybody else thought or what you thought about them. And they were really quick to tell you. And it was never pretty nor kind. It just reflected a selfishness unrestrained by God. And so we have to remember, we're called on to remember who we are, who we were, and what God has done and the incredible privilege that is ours to now be adopted into the very family of God and have the privilege of calling God our Father. That if you've been raised with Christ, you have new life. Isn't that amazing? You've been rescued from that life of selfishness and self-orientation. You don't need to live there anymore. God has actually delivered you from that so that you now have put on a new man. You're new in Christ so that Christ is all in all. As we look at that text, he comes back and he says, Holy and beloved. He's expanding on this. He's reminding us that how really the grace of God in salvation is a humbling reality because I brought nothing to the table except my rebellion. I was dead. I was a rebel. That's who I was. And God saved me that junior year. What changed? I had heard the gospel before. I would actually make fun of the gospel at times. I could answer the question correctly just to get rid of that person uh, witnessing to me. What changed? What changes? God opened this blinded eyes and all of a sudden I saw my sin for what it was and my rebellion against God. And I cried out, God, be merciful to me, this sinner. It was no longer abstract. It was deeply personal. And I saw the beauty of Christ and what Christ had done on the cross for me. And I wanted Christ. I did not want my way anymore. And so as those made new in Christ, we are called to be holy In fact, we're actually made holy because we're clothed in the very righteousness of God's Son, who's now declared us to be righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done, and he's called us to holiness, and that call to holiness is a call to that full devotion. You were once a child of disobedience. Your life was actually devoted to that rebellion. You walked in those ways. You're no longer that. Be holy. Be devoted to God. As God in his love and mercy saved you, your calling is to be devoted now. Now no longer an object of God's wrath, not a child of wrath, not an object of of, uh, destined unto wrath. You've actually received mercy destined unto glory. And as one destined to glory, your life is now to be devoted just like the temple objects. I think Andrew mentioned in going through Leviticus and you're dealing with all the sacrifices and I've been going in the middle of Exodus and, and then coming in the tabernacle and they're building all the objects for the, for the tabernacle and then everything for the utensils for sacrifice and for incense and all those items were devoted. They were holy. I mean, they're inanimate objects called holy. Well, why? Because they were fully devoted to the worship and service of God. And so when you're called to be holy, you're called to be fully devoted in the worship and service of God. No longer divided, no longer the duplicity that's in my heart to be two-minded or double-souled. I'm actually to seek, to pursue, to prefer that part of what God did in saving you is change your affections to deliver you from the affections of the temporal so that your affections are set on Christ. In fact, in chapter 2, he warns you, don't get deluded. There's lots of persuasive arguments out there. The devil's a clever liar, and you are far more ready to believe that lie than you ever imagined. It's the nature of what sin has done in your heart, so be wise and understand. There's all these persuasive arguments. Don't be deluded, but also don't be taken captive. It's verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, don't get taken captive. Really, the, the word is used in a warfare picture of being drugged off like you're a captive or you're the prize of that warfare. So don't get taken captive by these vain ideologies and drug away from Christ. And then he uses that language of victory in chapter 2 as well. So painting that imagery of warfare. Christ is the victor. In fact, you've been called to follow Christ as an overcomer because if... You've been raised with Christ. You have new life. And if you've been raised with Christ, you now live that new life in victory over sin and no longer yielding to that temptation of your flesh and bowing to it. And this all reminds us, in fact, it's just a link. In fact, some would argue that you hear this language, knowing your election of God, as he said, holy and beloved, it just jumps back to the reality of God taking Israel as his people. And you are a holy people, the Lord your God, for the Lord God has chosen you before to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Lord not did set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all the peoples. And the church is not Israel, but here's where we have this commonality that God in saving me did not save me because I was bringing, uh, he was just, oh, Billy can do so much for me. He's just so valuable. No, I'm just a sinner. I was a rebel against God, lived in that rebellion, and God in His grace saved me. And now I have this amazing privilege to serve Him. And I prayed from the time God called us to ministry and have prayed this way throughout ministry. And I can say I've been through various different times of ministry struggles where at times you're wondering whether or not uh, this is really what God has for you. And I had to quell all those doubts that would come out of my selfish heart and say, No, God called you. He's equipped you. He has never left you. He won't forsake you. What God's called you to do, you be faithful because God has never stopped being faithful to you. And God never will stop being faithful to you fierce child. He will be faithful and he'll take you through that trial that you think is the worst thing you've ever been through and it might be. It may be the worst thing you've faced yet in life. But God through that will actually equip you to minister to others always. And so as he reminds us of who we are, he reminds us that we're holy, but he also reminds we're beloved. You ever feel alone? You ever think no one cares? You ever told yourself that? Maybe I should ask you, have you ever convinced yourself of that? Nobody understands. Nobody knows what I'm going through. You know, pity parties usually don't stay alone. We always invite other people to join us. In fact, we usually, if we share our pity party, then somebody else sometimes will then begin to outclass us because their situation's worse. And then we're like, oh no, you don't really know the full extent. Because we're going we're gonna to have that story of that, where's this just so bad? And that's the gear, the again, that when that comes out of my heart, when it's there and it shows up, I just remember, that's what I was. I'm not supposed to be that anymore. If I've been raised with Christ, those things are supposed to be put to death. In fact, he tells us really in the text, if you look back, that he deals with the whole issues, the things to be put off. Uh, Back in in this very chapter, when you look up in verse 5, put to death your members, fornication, uncleanness, passion. He really does three sets of five here. So in verse 5, it's attitudes to be put away. These are to be put to death, cut out with the sword of the Spirit. And then he turns and he deals in verse 8. Now the actions that flow out of those attitudes, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language... And then now he begins in verse 12 with another set of five. And he even expands beyond that. In verse 12, though, there's another set of five to be put on. And so he's he's, he's coming to this transformation of life rooted in this reality of what God has graciously done to call us out of sin to himself. Now we live out a new life in Christ. And what is that to look like? And he tells us. um, Any of you really love clothes? Like if we went to your closet, we would know. Like your clothes, your 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 clothes out. I mean, I'm I'm sure you shop all the discounts. You get them for a good deal. None of it is going to be. Yeah, nobody's going to volunteer that, right? Well, I'll just volunteer. Okay, my wife. I'm one of those weird guys. I like to shop. I do. I enjoy shopping. I enjoy getting the deal. I do. I, I, I'm the guy that comes home and says how much I saved. Not really. <laughs> Now, when my wife, I'm the guy, when my wife comes home and tells me how much she saves, I said, yeah, but how much did you spend? Because I'm also an accountant, okay? So, uh, so but I, I enjoy shopping. I enjoy, and I enjoy the deal, and I like clothes. In fact, we, we've joked, I probably have more clothes than my wife. Okay, I like clothes. Because you know what? I learned a long time ago, if the tool ain't right, the man ain't bright. Guys, you just write that one down, that's the excuse for every new tool you need for your garage or for your handiwork, and it's also the reason why you need the appropriate clothing for all the different activities you engage in. Because if the tool ain't right, the man ain't bright. And so, I, I mean, I, so maybe I have too many hobbies, that could be possible, I've tried to limit. But the reality is, is we understand, I mean, when you got up, some of you did this too, you went to your closet and it's full, and you said, I got nothing to wear. I, there's nothing here. Man, I need to go shopping. I just don't have anything to wear. I don't think. I mean, really, we say that to ourselves, and reality is there's there's a closet full. Maybe some don't fit anymore. I get it. But the reality is, we've got all these clothes, and we're just we struggle sometimes to be satisfied, or we're not sure kind of the message we want to send because we all know we all know we're sending messages with our clothing. Whether you like it or not, you're sending messages, and that's whether how trendy you're going to be, what's ever cool, or how you want your body to look or what you want people to see, we're sending messages with our clothes. And Paul's using that analogy of put-on- put off to come to this reality. before you were new in Christ, the clothes in your closet, they were nasty. You didn't have any pretty clothes. They were all nasty. They were anger, wrath, malice. They were all of these things that once characterized your life. That's all that was there. Now you're new in Christ. You go to the closet. Stop digging in the garbage into your old clothes. Stop reaching back for what once was comfortable. You're new in Christ. And if you're new in Christ, now put on the new clothes. Isn't it amazing that you and I can actually be christ-like i i don't know what you how you process that maybe you process it just as that responsibility i'm supposed to live out to be just so people will maybe see christ in me and that's just so hard you can't do that i can't do that you try to produce christ-likeness you're not going to do that it's like the text says if you are raised in christ Now new life begins to be lived because there's new affection and a heart set free from sin. And if you're new in Christ, now start wearing, displaying this Christ-like character that actually belongs to Christ. These are his clothes. These are his characteristics. This is his life that he's now sharing with you. It's kind of like the armor of God. That's the divine armor. It's invincible armor, and God says, clothe yourself with it. Now he's saying, here's the very character of a new life. Your life is clothed in the very attributes, the character qualities of Jesus Christ. Now put it on display. This is what the world needs to see. This is actually how you're going to defeat the inroads of these false teachers that are making it more about the temporal, more about the sensual, more about your lust, more about your old man, your old desires. That's where the false teachers go. They make it more about you. They make it more temporal orientation. They draw into your lust. That's why we live in a culture filled with such sexual perversion and the mis- and wants to attack the very centrality of marriage and where the physical relationships belong and open up Pandora's box to trying to make that something that's just a recreational thing rather than something that wholly belongs within marriage where a marriage bed is undefiled. We live in a culture in rebellion against God and they want to capture your mind's eye and your affections and they use every avenue of media to do it, every avenue of thought to capture your attention, to try and draw you in to a culture filled with lust and say, satisfy your lust, then you will be authentic. You live in that culture. If you've been raised with Christ, you put that to death. You put it to death pull out the sword of the spirit and say, no, I've been raised to a new life. And that life is to honor Christ. And it's going to look like him a little more by God's grace each day. So when I come to worship, I come excited. Now I can be honest, there's not every Sunday, you know, it's like that old meme, you know, like the, the, you know, it's usually the mother that comes and says, you know, we got to go to church today. Come on, get ready. And he's like, no, I'm not going. I don't feel like it. And finally he says, but Honey, you're the pastor. <laughs> you know. uh, my wife never had to do that. But I can be honest and say some Sundays came harder than others. Because of the burdens of ministry, the burdens of life, there were some Sundays that just came harder than others. But I would go before the Lord, usually go to my office early that day, and I'd say, God, I, I'm just not a fit vessel right now. But you can change that. And sometimes it was physical trials, sometimes, I, I mean, by God's grace, I don't, I don't think I ever had a sick out on a Sunday morning, ever. Not saying I wasn't sick on Sunday morning, but just God and His grace helped through that. Probably was a terrible sermon, but at least I felt good, I got through it, but anyway. But I, I'm just saying the excitement that we ought to have of the privilege of worship we lose that because there's so many shiny things in our culture. The devil is so good at just, just putting shiny things out there. You know, I was in Florida for 11 years, and I learned to fish in the Florida salts. I enjoyed it in, uh, in the salt water. And the, so, in the, so we were in intercoastal. But there are times when fish would school. I mean, they, anything shiny in the water, literally we would take, and I know this dates me, all right, so forgive me, but you know, you, still some of you remember what a CD is. So we'd literally take a couple out there, break them off, tie them on, tie them on some fishing line, throw them out there. And this, these fish were schooling. It didn't matter. If it was shiny and it moved. They were trying to eat it. You know, that's a picture of what the devil's trying to do in your life. He wants you to consume a lust like it's a little thing. But you don't know what will inflame in your heart. And soon, every shiny thing, you're just trying to bite. Because he's going to inflame your passions. And he seeks to inflame your passions. That's why Paul says, put that off. You're new in Christ. As we look at the close, we're just quickly, and I don't need to spend a lot of time here, but I think we're helped to think about it. Tender mercies, compassion. You know, your fundamental thing that's going to finally get you over the fear, of, the fear of men, the fear of self. I mean, the reality is, is the number one reason we don't witness is fear. We don't because we're afraid. We're afraid people are what they're going to think of us. We're not sure. We maybe think we're not confident. I've often said it this way. If you've been saved, if you're new in Christ, you have a testimony. Start there. If you can't share a testimony, maybe it's because you're not new in Christ. But if you're new in Christ, you can share your testimony with anyone. You can wrap that sh- testimony down in just a few minutes. I appreciate the testimony this morning. Did a really good job bringing it down to a, a crystallization and sharing it. And you can share that testimony. And, and honestly, I always challenge our folks back in, in, in uh, Vermont. I said, just get your testimony down to about three minutes. And no one's going to be offended when you take three minutes of their time. And you can crystallize the gospel in three minutes and highlight what God did in your life. And when you have compassion for lost people, then you get over the fear of self. Because honestly, if we care, we warn. We warn. I mean, the bridge is out, okay? This is not like if, you know, we make the analogy, well, if you're on the side of the road and the bridge is out ahead, what are you going to do? you Are going to stand there and watch people plunge to their death? And you're like, no, I wouldn't do that. I'm going to try and stop them. Well, the bridge is out. They are going to crash into an eternal destruction. They're lost. They're dead. They're hostile. They need someone to care. And then when we talk about being Christ-like, I mean, Jesus i went back, but I'll jump here. In the example of Christ, and I'm going to jump forward one more time. I think I have it here. Uh, Heartfelt compassion. Yes, it's right here. Sorry, I should advance the slide a couple times. But we find tender mercies. Here's in Jesus' example. When he came, he saw the great multitude. He's moved with compassion for them. Remember, we are to have tender mercies, compassionate heart. That actually causes us to take action. Jesus didn't just go, oh, I feel bad for these people. He did something. When we actually have tender mercies, when we actually have compassion that governs our disposition, then we care about people's lost condition. And that care, that compassion will compel you. That's a whole lot different than feeling like it's obligation and I gotta go and I gotta try and convince somebody and I'm gonna persuade them today to believe so I feel spiritual. This isn't about you feeling spiritual. This is about genuinely caring for lost people in their lost condition. And you knowing Christ, if you're new in Christ, then have compassion for the lost. Have compassion for your brother and sister in the midst of their struggle. You don't know the full extent of the struggle and don't try and do, and maybe you're familiar with this or not, but you know, the guy who says, you know, I had two molars pulled and it was really bad. And the other guy said, yeah, I had nine. You know, don't do the nine molar story. Don't be the guy that's had more suffering than somebody else be moved with a heart of compassion, that we move towards people in the midst of their their suffering. That is to be like Christ. And we're to be kind. I mean, I I don't know the last time I I walked away from a conversation and walked away and said, man, honey, you know what? I don't like that guy. He's too kind. I, I, I can tell you people in ministry have impacted my life throughout the years, people that I enjoy being around. And one of the commonalities is they're my friends. They will tell me the truth. They will confront me, but they've always done it with a spirit of love and kindness. And I love being around them because they build me up, but they are kind. And that part of kindness is that, again, that compassionate heart, because I care, I move toward, and then I'm actually going to be kind in dealing with people because I'm not trying to belittle them to make me appear more. I mean, I, I've been in the toxic environments before. I've had people in our church before that I was their pastor and they would be the ones who wanted to point out the flaws in everybody around them and criticize them because it made them feel more spiritual. That should not be true in the local church. That doesn't belong. You're not more spiritual than the person next to you. If you're in Christ, it was a gift of God by grace. And it is only, you are only what you are by the grace of God. So stop taking pride in your spirituality. It actually is an oxymoron. It doesn't ever go together. Put on compassion. Be kind. Take out of your closet. And maybe you think about this. Maybe you're going to put, go in, maybe you'll just label some of these things in your closet. Say, these are my compassionate clothes. No, (laughs) these are my kind ones. But you're reminding yourself, you're putting on, you are to be kind, and you can be. But it also is using that imagery. This didn't once belong to you. It wasn't yours. You couldn't do this. But now in Christ you can. But it still has to be intentional. Thus, put it on. Put it on. And not only kindness, but Humility. I mean, there's several good books on humility that you could read, and, and one of those things we have to work on because, you know, we're all spring-loaded to believe too much about ourselves, to make it about self. In humility, we just, I'll, I'll say this with a tender balance. There's in one sense, I don't care what you think about me because ultimately you're not my judge. God is. And if that's where you're going with that, I don't care what others think about me, you're heading in the right direction. But if you're just, I'm going to do what I'm going to do and I don't care what people think, You're in an altogether different direction. So humility, because there's plenty of people that put on false pretense of humility. They'll be greatly sacrificial. I mean, you think about the great love chapter. They gave their life for people and they still didn't love them, okay? So you can die for somebody and actually not love them. So you can sacrifice and not love. You can pretend to put off things and act humble and actually only want the attention of others. See how spiritual they are? That's not humility. Humility doesn't care how other people treat you, because it's there to serve. It will be kind even when treated not with kindness. Now we all know that we're you know when somebody's mean, we're mean back. In fact, you fooled me once, shame on you. You fooled me twice, shame on me. I'm not going to let that happen again. And we shut off ministry. We actually aren't humble. We put on humility and we put on meekness. That's that self-control. It's the example of Christ who went to a cross and could have called the angels down and delivered him, and he did not. He finished the work, and he's called you to finish the work he's given to you. And it's going to take a spirit of meekness so that when you are mistreated by others, you actually are meek because you don't think too much of self. You're actually humble. You actually care about others more than self. And then long-suffering. I've been serving the Lord for a number of years. I can tell you, I'm thankful every day that God's mercies are new. I'm thankful every day that He's invited me to a throne filled with grace and mercy. It's a throne filled with grace and mercy. That I can go every day to that throne and say, Lord, you know more than I do how I failed you. And all I can ask is your forgiveness and your grace to help me to grow each day to fail you less, that I magnify you more, that I am dead to that old life. I died to that old life. Lord, help me to quit trying to resurrect it, that I might actually live for you. And I go to a throne filled with grace and mercy, and then I thank thank God that he's been so long-suffering with a sinner like me? When's the last time you praised God for His long-suffering in your life? And then for those people that you're burdened about to see them come to Christ, when's the last time you thank God for His long-suffering with them? They still have life and breath. You know what? You have hope. And you get to take the gospel to them filled with hope and compassion because you care. Because you genuinely care. Folks, our witness is empty if we do not genuinely care. They're just words flapping in the wind. When there's a heart of compassion that cares, now we begin to win trust. And we begin to bring trust because we genuinely care and love, then actually these clothing starts to be on display. And the unsaved person you're ministering to will begin to take notice that your clothes look a lot different than theirs. And they're going to begin to want some new clothes. Amen? Aren't you glad you have a closet full of new clothes? You should be. You're no longer going to have to walk around in the rags of death. You've been delivered. If you're new in Christ, put to death that old life and live a new life in Christ. Let's pray.